Today we'll be interviewing former rugby union and league player and current Irish rugby head coach Andy Farrell. Andy played rugby league for Wigan and then switched to union where he played for Saracens in England. Welcome Andy and thanks for fitting us into your busy schedule. Before we start the questions, commiserations after Saturday's loss. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's never easy to take when you, when you lose a test match. Um, but yeah, you've got to understand the reasons why, etc. And, uh, and move on. Thanks, and now we'll play your first song, Wonderwall by Oasis. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. By now you should have somehow realized what you gotta do I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now Backbeat, the word is on the street that the fire in your heart is out I'm sure you've heard it all before but you never really had a doubt Feels the way I do about you now And all the roads we have to walk are winding And all the lights that lead us there are blinding There are many things that I would like to say to you But I don't know March 2005, you announced that you were switching to Union to play for Saracens. How did you find the switch from League to Union? Um, it was difficult, actually. Um, I thought I thought it was going to be. Um, uh, well, to be honest, I, I didn't think it was going to. I, I didn't think it was going to be easy. It, um, 
I was obviously very aware just how different the, 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 the games were because obviously I was very fond of rugby union and, and watched it uh, at great length, etc. Um, but I wanted a challenge and um, I certainly got that. Um, the, the game, the games are um, very similar uh, in, in, in obviously uh, four corners of the pitch and two rugby poles and an and a oval ball. But uh, as far as everything else is concerned, there's, there's, uh, there's quite a bit of difference in the two games. Now, while playing Union, you had a number of positions, centre, fly half and flanker. What was your favourite position? Well, to be honest, um, my my favourite position, I didn't play much at flyer, but uh, I would have liked to have played played more there. Um, uh, centre was probably the the, the position uh, number twelve was probably the, the position that was more suited to me, um, uh, simply because flanker, even though. I, um, if I'd have been uh, involved with with the game for for a number of years earlier, when I, when I was younger, I suppose that would have been uh, more suited to me. But coming coming into the game very late on in my career, um, it's, it's it's really really tough to to pick up all the uh, all the traits of what a top class uh, forward needs needs to know. You know, regarding regarding the line line out uh, scrum. Uh, breakdown, etc. Um, so I think I think centre would have been the easier one, and that's why we went doing that option in the end. I'm sure you've seen a lot of change throughout the past 20 years while coaching and playing. What was the biggest change in rugby union in the past 20 years? Oh well, um, th- there's been so much change, and it, and it's constant. And uh, sometimes it uh, it winds me up a little bit that that there is constant change, you know. And, what 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 I what what I don't like about the constant change is is, is keep on adding. You know, it, it can become a very complicated game at times when it doesn't need to be. Um, so the, the, there's always something that's happening around the set piece, line out of, of scrum, etc. And uh, um, uh, there's there's been some good change I would have thought um, uh, recently at, at the breakdown, which has opened the game up a little bit. But um, yeah, the, the, there's constant change, and uh, you know, I, I read once that Steve Hansen um, uh, commented that the, that that the only thing to do with uh, with the rule book is rip it up and start again, really, rather than just keep adding the whole time. And uh, yeah, you would you would certainly echo those those um, those comments at times. You know, it can get a little bit frustrating when you just keep adding. Thanks, and now we'll play your next song, Mr. Blue Sky by Electric Light Orchestra.
assistant coach from 2016 to 19 and then taken over and head coach in 2020. So do you have a preference as head coach or assistant defense coach? Um, I enjoy them both, uh, uh, thoroughly, you know, um, I was, I was privileged to, um, to be the defense coach, assistant coach under Joe and, uh, yeah, and lucky enough to, to, um, to get the job after him as well. So, so it's something, uh, coaching it just it, it excites me anyway, you know, it's a passion. I, I love it. And I suppose, um, I've been, I've been a coach before at Saracens, um, uh, under under um, Mark McCall, he was director of rugby, and I was uh, um, head coach. And so I have been able to um, assess them both before. Um, and you know, I suppose it's whatever you're into. It's whatever you're in uh, doing, uh, no matter uh, what team what team you're involved with. You just do the best job you, you possibly can. Um, I would say the 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 very different assistant coach. You, you obviously. You're given a role to to make sure that you um, you get across and, and and take hold of as a as a head coach. You're, you're across most things and obviously um, uh, guiding guiding your coaches along the way as well. So I enjoy both of them. To be honest. Of course, yeah. Um, you've coached quite a few teams in your time, England, Ireland, and the Lions. Do you have a certain team that you found quite quite tricky or hard to coach? Um, every team's different. Every, every team's got completely different circumstances, you know. Um, uh, when when I first started going into coaching, I just finished playing at Saracens, and I, I was I was coaching all my uh, uh, teammates from the previous previous four years, like you know. So yeah. That was that was strange and difficult to, uh, at the time, but it was a great grounding for me, and then. Going to international coaching is very different to, to club coaching uh, at England. Um, England was a, a very young side then uh, under Stuart Lancaster. Um, I think the first game that we played there was 12 new caps, um, so a very very young side that um, that obviously after four years uh, didn't do too well in in, in in the home World Cup. But I think um, after that experience, because of the youth of the side. Um, you know, most of those players are still together now, and uh, I think England are seeing the rewards from that. And I think yeah, yeah. continuity is always going to be um, a key part in this. And then with the Lions, um, yeah, it's obviously a, a massive privilege to to be involved in coaching the best of the best, etc. But uh, how how a, a Lions um, uh, squad uh, scenario tour is put together is is completely different to to anything else that you you would experience in, in coaching you know it's very unique yeah, I can, I can bringing, imagine, every, yeah. bringing all four countries together and uh, and then trying to get them up to speed as soon as you possibly can very good um without giving too much away we've seen many teams uh coping with the new kind of tactic of rush defense and dual playmakers for example new zealand who have uh, moanga and barrett do you yeah. see ireland possibly sourcing a new method well, uh, it's, uh, we're always uh, certainly searching for ways to improve our game, and I suppose yeah, the first thing that, that you've got to do is is understand uh, understand the people that you've got, the players that you've got, etc., and whether they can uh, fit to, to to those ideas. Sometimes, sometimes you have to mould your 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 game around the, around the, the squad that you've got uh, because um, every yeah, yeah. every every, uh, every squad is different. Very good. Many pundits now asking the question of uh, the Northern Hemisphere compares to the uh, Southern. Um, how do you think the likes of English Premiership and Pro 14 compare to the likes of Super Rugby? Um, yeah, I think I think they do compare. Um, I suppose that you know the the biggest thing that people would see in, in, in Super Rugby, and I'm not talking about all of the Super Rugby now. I'm talking about the top games in Super Rugby. Is, yeah. You know, the speed of ball, etc. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose it's not as uh, set piece dominant, um, and the ball seems to be pretty, pretty quick uh, from breakdown, etc. You know, and the obvious thing to say in and around that, and it, and it is true, um, is the conditions that they play in um, week in, week out. You know, um, mm. uh, it always, um, it always. Uh, Seems to be better, doesn't it, with a with a drier ball? Um, uh, and you know, I think I think that given 
given um, given the the Northern Hemisphere teams time to to play uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm sure that they could adapt to the to the same uh, same or similar type of game as well. You know, um, and 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 going the other way, you know, sometimes the Southern Hemisphere teams come unstuck over here because. Because of the conditions and the attritional way of playing over here, yeah. whether it be breakdown or, or set piece driven or whatever, because of the conditions, I'm sure that they would adapt if they spent some time over here as well. Thanks, and I will play your next song, Don't Look Back in Anger.
just going to talk about the effects of COVID on your coaching. With many stadiums around the world facilitating no fans, what's your opinion on playing in empty stadiums? Well, it's not ideal. Um, it's not what the it's not what the players want. It's not what the administrators want. It's not what the uh, the country wants. It's certainly not what the fans want. Um, but it is what it is. Um, the, the game the game we're very lucky that we're able to to get back playing. You know, um, and and suppose that is the main thing. Um, uh, obviously, TV rights and, and, and commercial. Commercial responsibilities, etc., all need to be uh, adhered to, and, uh, and and you know the, the the bottom line is is professional sport. It needs funds to be able to to be able to carry on. Uh, otherwise, the the the, the sport is going is going to struggle. So we're, we're very thankful for that. Now, with everyone around the world having to make changes to their everyday living with COVID, how has training and communication changed? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's changed a hell of a lot, and uh, it affects everyone. You know, there's there's no there's not a single person that's not affected uh, affected by um, by by COVID, and <clears throat> it's it's strange times. And certainly, we've we've as a team has got to have to be very adaptable as well. You know, um, in camp, it is it's very different how we how we act and how we um, uh, socialise together is is, uh, is is completely different now and very strange. But one where we've had two and a half weeks of it now and I suppose we, uh, uh, again, uh, we adapt and we, and we get on. Um, uh, for example, you know, there's normally 10 sat around the dinner table uh, eating and uh, with social distancing and Everything that needs to go on and wearing masks the whole time. There's, there's now three. Um, regarding meetings, they're normally very uh, tight, and everyone's normally pushed towards the front, so you, everyone can hear and everyone can join in. But now, now a meeting would be spaced over 20, 30 meters away, so social distancing is is at the premium. So. Yeah, we have to adapt and, uh, and and rightly so, you know, to make sure that these games still get played. How did you communicate and keep in touch with players and coaches during the first lockdown period? Um, on the same way as everyone else, I would have thought on the, on the yeah. Microsoft Teams and, uh, and and Zoom calls and phone calls and making sure that you do keep connected. It's very important. What I found uh, straight away, we came out of. Um, we were supposed to be going to France uh, playing that weekend, and it got cancelled. Um, um, so we was we was cut short straight away, and it was very strange. You know, the first yeah. Six Nations for for us was 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 cut short. But um, what, what we try to do is is reflect on 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 the learnings as soon as we possibly can, and keep a structure. To our day, I think I think that was very important. That it, it, we we kept a structure in order to uh, to what our week was like. Then we could uh, we could make sure that we're, we're we was improving and, uh, and and learning the lessons. Now we'll play your last song, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Sure. 
I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, 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 Galileo Figaro. Oh, I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family, sparing his life from this monstrosity. Come, easy go, will you let me go? Bismillah, no, we will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah, we will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah, we will not let you go. Let me go. Will not let you go. Let me go. Will not let you go. Let me go. Oh, mamma mia, mamma mia. Mamma mia, let me go. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me. kind of fun and uh, lightning round kind of questions for you. So first off, do you have a favourite stadium you've either played at or coached at? Wembley always always uh, hits home to me. Um, I, I love the Aviva as well. I think it's a, it's a fantastic ground. Um, but as a kid, I was always growing up uh, watching watching all the finals at Wembley, so I was lucky yeah. enough to play there. So, 80th minute kick to win the game. Who would take it? Yourself in your prime? Or uh, or own. Um, what would you want me to say? I'd say I'd say you have a good <laughs> chance. I'd say. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen. Uh, those pressure kicks. Those are the ones that you want. And uh, yeah, I used to love taking them. But uh, I'm sure Owen does as well. You know. I'm yeah. sure Johnny does as well. So. Uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No. You love those moments as a kicker. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. If you could have any international player suddenly switch nationality and play for Ireland, who would it be? Bar Owen, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'd get in trouble for that. Um, <laughs> look, I, I suppose the truth's in the pudding, isn't it? With uh, uh, with um, what somebody like um, uh, Borden Ballas achieved uh, playing any position, you know, across the back line, and he's a, he's a wonderful player, isn't yeah. it? You know. Um, but having said that. I'm sure that you'd look around every every um, every nation, and uh, there's, there's probably one that you would uh, that you would pick from everywhere. And if you weren't, uh, if you didn't have a profession in rugby, then where would you have liked to have gone into? Um, I was always I was always into my sport. So um, growing up as a kid, I mean, I, I was I was very fortunate to uh, to to get into uh being a professional uh rugby player straight out of school i mean like yeah i signed for wigan at 15 you know i played my debut at 16 um and professional sport had just come into uh fruition at that time so i was very lucky so i was i was living the dream you know but um as a kid you know i suppose everyone dreams of uh stupid things as a kid you know as, mm-hmm. a, as a as a six seven year old everyone wants to be a a fireman or, or a policeman or, or whatever it may be, but I suppose somewhere along the line, um, I always wanted to be something to do with sports. I know as a, as a 12, 13 year old, I was always thinking about going into PE teaching, um, uh, stuff like that, you know. Um, I suppose I didn't get to the older stages where um, I thought about a, a career out of sport. Yeah. Thank you so much, for Andy, for coming on to the show today. We very much appreciate it, and good luck in the Eight Nations. 
Thanks very much, lads. It's been a pleasure and uh, good luck with the show. Cheers, Andy. Thank Thanks. You. Take Cheers. Care. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. Hello, my name is Sam Donovan. And my name is Connor Vaughan, and welcome to Guest Requests. Today we are joined by Ray Darcy. Thanks for coming on, Ray. It's great to have you here. Very welcome. It's great to be here. Over the course of the show, we'll be counting down some of Ray's favourite songs from over the years and discussing his life and career. So, Ray, we'll start off with your early life first. We are aware you grew up in Kildare. Was there someone from your childhood who influenced your decision to p pursue radio as a career? Um, not really, no. <laughs> Just... I, well, I suppose, yeah, like when I was in um, fifth year in uh, St. Joseph's Academy in Kildare, uh, we got a new boy from England, his name was Paul Barras. Uh, his dad came to work at the local factory. And we were sitting in the local hall at a disco on Friday night, and we were looking up at the DJ, who was this very tall um, local painter, not, not a fine artist, now a you know, painter decorator. And he wore a monkey hat with a, a bauble on top. And um, anyway, his name was Noel Roberts. And we were looking at him, and he was saying, my boy, lollipop. And I turned to Paul, and I said, like, gee, Matthew, your man isn't great, is he? And then Paul said to me, um, well, I was a DJ in the UK, and I have the gear. And then on that Friday night, we decided to go into business together. Um, I was 15, he was probably 16. And uh, by the end of that summer, he had decided that he didn't want to be a DJ, that he wanted to be a drummer in a band. So he sold me his gear. Um, and he bought a drum kit. That's what led me into DJing, yeah, that's, it started from there. Um, I did my first disco for my older brother on Kilmacud Road. He was in UCD and he was having a house party and he told all his housemates that uh, uh, his brother was a DJ and had been DJing for years, which was a complete lie because I was only 15 <laughs> and I just got the gear. But anyway, they, they believed him or choose uh, to ignore the fact that he was telling a lie. And uh, so that was my first gig. So you're the third eldest of nine. What was, like, what was it like growing up with so many siblings? <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose like it was my normal. <laughs> I had, had nothing to compare it to. But, uh, yeah, we, we, we lived in a, a council estate um, in a very small house. Um, and it was, it was brilliant because you didn't need friends, although you had loads of friends around. Yeah. Because your family, there was enough people going around. And then when you got a bit older, all your like your your sisters had their friends coming into the house. Your brothers had their friends. So it was just it was very eventful. Uh, it flew in. <laughs> it was always crowded around the house. Always crowded around the house. Yeah, always crowded around the house. And um, yeah, it was it was a very a very exciting and uh, eventful childhood. Like you said, that you started DJing at fifteen, and I think we found, we found you had a your first paper round when you were nine as well. Did you find you were very innovative as a child? Well, it was just it was the way it was back then. Um, like, Joe had a paper round, and then whoever, there were two paper rounds out of this uh, shop up in Kildare Town called Malone's. And so when the other one became vacant, he volunteered me, and I thought nothing of it. It's fine, he used to do it before school and after school. And then you do one round on a Saturday morning, I think, and one round on a Sunday. Um... Yeah, but I, so then I just thought that working was the thing to do. So after that, I got a job in a local grocery. I joined the FCA, worked in a drapery. And it wasn't about the money. It was just about, you know, doing something. Yeah, so at the start, did you find it was uh, difficult to find the money to buy all the gear? I bought a bike, and I, had to, I sold that to buy the gear from Paul Barat. So that was the first thing. So I had to do it out of bike. Uh, and then I worked in a drapery part-time. And I remember at one stage I went to my boss because I needed a new set of decks. Um, and I asked him, would he advance me? I don't know how many weeks wages, but it was a lot because I was on 17 pounds a week and I needed 200 pounds. So I do the maths on that. Yeah. And so I, I, I asked him and he said yes. So I got the 200 pounds from him and uh, went off and bought the decks. Yeah. And, and then, of course, you were constantly reinvesting. I sound like a little businessman here, but you were always you were always buying new gear. And there was a a disco equipment shop in Leakslip, and you'd travel up, get some somebody to drive you up, your grandfather or something like that. And you go in, you'd be just like drooling over all the gear, saying one day I will have enough money uh, to to buy that. 
So you'd save and save and save, and then you go up and buy a new, you know, a new set of speakers, or you'd upgrade your decks, or buy some new lights. That's, that was the way it was done. So did you have any sort of a studio then when you were young? No, I, um, when I when I went to um, university, I remember the, the first year, or the second year, no, maybe I was out of university. I can't remember what. Um, at some stage in my twenties, anyway, uh, I set up. Um, there was a guy in Newbridge called Terry, and at the time they were legalizing all the local radio stations. And I thought to myself, here's an opportunity now. There are going to be loads of people wanting to make demo tapes, professionally made demo tapes. So myself and Terry set up a studio in Newbridge and advertised it, um, you know, inviting people to make the demo tapes that they'd need to get jobs in these newly um, legalized radio stations. I think we got two people. <laughs> so, and one guy came up on the train from Tullamore or someplace like that and uh, I had to collect him from the train station and drive him to Newbridge and, and he had an imaginary friend so he used to turn off Mike and put on a squeaky voice and it was, anyway, it, was all, it wasn't very successful anyway, but it was about putting the thing together and uh, yeah, there you go So uh, we're going to play your first song now okay. which is This Must Be The Place by Talking Heads Can you tell right. us why you picked this song? Um. Well, 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 Talking Heads, um, when I was in college, Talking Heads released a live concert movie. And they used to show it on loop in the Ambassador at the top of O'Connor Street. Um, and it was the first of its kind. So the way they recorded it and the way it was played out in the cinema, it was the next best thing to going yeah. to a concert. So uh, regularly you'd get a group of your friends and you'd go up uh, and they, they pumped out the music and people wouldn't sit down, they'd stand up and dance along to the, the Talking Heads songs like Psycho Killer and all that. Yeah. Uh, and as a result at the time, uh, Talking Heads became this huge band, although they'd been around for quite some time. Uh, this opened them up to a whole new audience. And then this, this came along, this song, and I just remember hearing it for the first time. And, and although nobody else liked it, that's what it seemed at the time. And I used to play it at the beginning of discos before the crowd came in because I knew if I played it, when the crowd were in, that it cleared the floor. And it's just a song that has stuck me for since the 1980s. Yeah. And what has happened over the years is that more and more people have sort of discovered it. And I, I, I was looking up Spotify recently, and there's something like 20 cover versions of it. They're amazing. It's wow. just such... And it, it's a song for all occasions. It's a song you can play when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're running, when you're in the car, if it's winter, if it's summer, if you're cooking, if you're reading. It's just a song for all occasions. It's just... It, it always lifts my mood.
guest requests, we're interviewing Ray Darcy here. So Ray, before we the break, we were talking about your early life. We're now going to talk about your college life and your rugby career. Ray, uh, I believe you're the captain of the Kildare or FC senior rugby team whilst at a college. Uh, no, no, it was, it was the club team, yeah. Yeah, the club team. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think we're 21 or something like that. And uh, I don't know why they, they, I don't know why they made me the captain. Uh, probably nobody else wanted the job. But um, yeah, I've been playing since I was 17 with seniors. Um, and uh, so I was 21, I made the captain. And we got to the, I think we got to the final of the Junior 2 Leinster Championship that year. Rugby, rugby back then was different, you know. Like I remember, our scrum half used to have a cigarette at halftime. <laughs> uh, it was ridiculous. It was, it was a lot more casual. Yeah. Um, but it was good, good crack. What position do you play, Ray? Uh, I played uh, first bench. And when first did bench. you stop playing? Uh, when I was 29, uh, because it became personal. So <laughs> I remember playing once, and there were little kids shouting at the sideline from the opponent's side. They were supporting to the opponents. And they were shouting, that guy's on zig and zag, get him, get him. <laughs> then I was at the bottom of a rope one day, and some guy stood in my hand, and he said, tell Zig and Zag about that. <laughs> so it was a bit, my job was getting a bit old as well. So, uh, and I wasn't available to do as much training as I should have been. So yeah. I, I hung up my boots when I was 29. Uh, so I went to college in um, Trinity College. And it was by default more than anything else. Um, I'd been in St. Vincent's Hospital when I was 10, but I wasn't sick. It was some sort of, it was a skin disorder, but I wasn't sick at all. Yeah. And because the doctor I was seeing went on holidays, I was there for three and a half weeks which was ridiculous uh, but it was a brand new hospital hospital, and I was a bit of an oddity because it was an adult hospital so I had a, this amazing time there believe it or not in hospital um, and as a result of that I decided I want to be a doctor so right through uh, the rest of primary school and into secondary school I was convinced that that's what I was going to do and I put medicine down on my CAO but unfortunately at the time I was one point short it was a different point system then it was I think it might have been 24 or 23 and I got 22 or 21 um, something like that uh, and then uh, I wanted to do communications and you had to have an honour in English which I didn't get um, and then third on the list was psychology in Trinity and at the time there was no tradition of repeating in our school yeah. nobody repeated so you, you, you got what you, whatever you got and you put up with it and you went on uh, so that's and the reason I put psychology down was an aunt of mine had been a psychologist and she said that I might like it. And then we had a principal, no, sorry, a vice principal, a vice principal called uh, Marty Ryan. And he said that I had a great understanding of the human condition. That, that yeah. psychology might be a good career choice for me. So that's how I ended up doing psychology. So you said you, said you missed, just missed out on medicine when you were going to college. Was mm. there a point where you found you wanted to do DJing? Was there like a turn on, turning point? Well, well, it was that. It was that when I was fifteen, and um, so I, I, um, I started DJing then. And uh, over the, the the next sort of four, five, six years, like at one stage, I was DJing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Oh. So it's five nights a week. Very busy. Yeah, that was oh, when I was in second year in college. Now we only had eight hours of lectures, so it didn't really impinge on my on my studying at all. Um, and then at some stage, I do remember at one stage saying to myself, if by the age of 30 that I hadn't managed to land a career in radio or television, mainly radio, it was always radio, um, that I would then just go on with my life, whatever that life was, um, and whatever my career was. So that, that was yeah. my sort of cut-off point. So, Ray, we're going to play your second song now, Great. Respect, by Aretha Franklin. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of soul. Uh, always have been. This is the song that encapsulates the perfect soul song for me, and that it's, it's short, it has a message, and it's adapted.
today we're in the studio interviewing Ray Darcy. We are now going to move on to your career in radio and television. So you began your career at RTE for Radio Nagel Tukta and you later moved to, the, to Today FM in the late 90s where you took over Tim Kelly's mid-morning show. You're on Joe Maxi. You yeah. must have been delighted to secure this job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a strange one because I'd, I'd been up for an interview and uh, was driving back down and they'd rang home before I got home. So they'd rang the home phone because there's no mobile phones there. So all the rest of the family were out on the front wall to greet me and tell me the good news. They got a job at RTE! Yay! <laughs> Little did I know. Anyway, <laughs> at the time I was naive and it was very exciting. No, it was very exciting. No, it was very exciting. Um, and of course that led to the den. So I did two years in Joe Maxey. And Joe Maxey was great because um, you got to do loads of different things. Um, so it was the per perfect apprenticeship. Um, you got to do studio work, you got to do what they call EFP, that's where you go to and do a report. Um, uh, you got, you know, we travelled, I travelled to New York, London, Paris, to do interviews. So it was just, it was a great uh, two years um, of an apprenticeship. And then Zig and Zag saw me on Iceland and saw something that they liked. Ian Dempsey was leaving the den and Zag approached me at the photocopier and asked me would I be their minder. Um, and uh, I thought he was uh, taken the proverbial, uh, but he wasn't, and I said yes, and then I did eight years on the den. Was there a particular role model like Gay Byrne or someone at the time who you looked up to a lot? Yeah, well, Gay, Gay Byrne, like, he's, he is the master, was the master, um, just just so brilliant to what he what he did, um, and, like, you would, you would, probably one of the best broadcasters in the world, Gay Byrne, um, so I definitely looked up to Gay Byrne. And then there were people at the time who were working in entertainment television, like Noel Edmonds. I would have looked up to him, maybe not so much now. Michael Barrymore, not so much now, obviously. But at what he did, like, just brilliant. And it was about making it appear easy and uh, putting people at their ease. And, and that's what those people were really good at. It didn't look like they were working. Of course, they were, and they, they put all the preparation in, but they made it look very easy. I believe you're the ambassador for organ donor awareness in 2019. Yeah, well, this is um, something I did 20 years ago. So when I was on the den, the people in the Irish Kidney Association of Ireland approached me and asked me would I be their ambassador, and I said yes. Um, and I did it for two years, I think. And then they came back to me in 2019 and asked me would I do it again. And, of course, I said yes again because it's a... Um, it, it's a no-brainer, really. Um, they, they do such amazing work. And the stories I've heard over the years about organ donation um, are just so amazing. And they point to what we can do as human beings when we put our minds to it. Like, I've, I met a dad who donated his kidney to his son and saved his life. Um, another dad uh, donated his kidney to his five-year-old daughter to save her life. Um, and just more and more of those stories. And it, it, they're just just brilliant stories. And th these wouldn't happen without the advocacy and the fundraising of the Irish Kidney Association and similar organizations. So when, when they come and ask you, will you put your face on the on a poster or something like that, it's like, that's easy. What yeah. person, what people do. You ran in the Run for Life event. Did you? Uh, how did you find that? Do you run much, or was it a challenge for you? No, I, I, I yeah, I'm a runner. I, I, yeah, I wasn't a runner. I never liked running um, as when I was your age. Um, although I was a member of the Kildare Athletics um, Club, and the only reason I joined there was because Frida Farrell, she was the best looking girl in Kildare. She was a member of the club, <laughs> so all of us lads joined us and literally ran after her because she was a very good runner. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I, I never saw, I never saw the attraction of running. Uh, it, you know, during my twenties and thirties, I, I cycled a good bit and I played sport. Obviously, I played rugby until I was twenty-nine, and then five-a-side soccer. And then in my late, um, late thirties, um, I, I couldn't swim, so I decided I was going to learn how to swim. And I, I tried to learn how to swim a number of times over the years. Uh, when I was in Scouts and, and then again in my 20s or something like that, always life took over. Anyway, this time I was determined. And I, in order to sort of uh, seal the deal, if you like, I knew I had to set myself a goal and I knew I had to make that goal public. So I said 
Uh, one October, I said, I'm going to be able to swim by this time next year. Not only that, but I'm going to swim a mile. So I'm going to do a triathlon. Um, and it was coming up to my 40th birthday as well. So that was the aim, to learn how to swim and to do a triathlon before my 40th birthday. So a, a sort of a side effect of that, if you like, was the running. So uh, the triathlon was, uh, what, a mile in the sea, uh, 40 kilometer cycle, and then a 10K run. Um, so I managed to conquer that, which is brilliant. Um, and, and then the knock-on effect was that I, I kept up the running. And then I started doing marathons. I did three Dublin marathons. And now I run six days, six days a week. Do you see yourself still working on the radio in a couple of years' time? <laughs> ah, yeah. No, I, like, I'll be doing something. Because, uh, and it, it, it's so exciting for your generation now um, that, that everybody can do something. Uh, there's no boundaries anymore. There's no barriers, sorry. There's no barriers and boundaries anymore. Um, so you can set yourself up in a bedroom or wherever at home for less than a thousand euro and you can have a podcast up within an hour um, and that's the way it's and, and podcast podcast industry or whatever you'd call it is going to grow and grow and grow as people you know in the next 10 years everybody will have access to podcasts in their car and that's going to be a big competition for what you call traditional radio so even if even if I, I'm not working on traditional radio in you know 10, 15 years' time, I would definitely be podcasting to anybody who wants to hear it. We did, we had a great story last year about a man. Uh, the BBC discovered him. He had set up a radio station in his shed, right? And uh, for over 20 years, he broadcast to his house, to one person, <laughs> his wife. So he had to go out to the shed a number of times a week and uh, do two hours of a music show, broadcasting to his wife in the kitchen. Uh, and, uh, and then eventually uh, the BBC discovered them and they gave them a, a sort of a half-hour show just for one Saturday on a local a local BBC station. Anyway, I just thought that's 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 me. I will I will be happy to broadcast to Jenny. Although Jenny would probably be broadcasting with me because we yeah. do a, a podcast together. So yeah, I, I like I I'm, I'm easy. The only I suppose. Uh, Restriction on my career is the fact that I have two young children and yeah. uh, I need to, you know, keep them fed uh, and in school for the next number of years. Yeah. So that will determine that I'll have to stay in 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 paying employment for a while. But after that, I don't mind what I do. Oh, I'm aware that you showed that Dennis recently returned. <laughs> oh, you must be delighted that that is back. So tell us about that. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's not something I ever thought would happen. It's not something I planned for. I'm delighted that it has happened, uh, but it's it, it's weird and wonderful and definitely surreal. So what happened was, um, with the pandemic, RTE did comic relief, and a friend of mine was the executive producer on it, Darren Smith, and he came and he said, "What do you think about getting the Den back together just for comic relief, just to do ten minutes or something?" I said, "Yeah, that sounds great. We do it." Uh, and that was back in June. And it, it went down really well, got a huge positive reaction, people loved it. And it felt very right, it felt as if we'd never stopped. It's like what they say about a good friendship. You know, you could be apart for 10 years and then meet up and you just take up where you left off. Well, that was exactly what it was like returning to the den. So as the pandemic continued and the restrictions around television and all this continued, uh, RTE had to look around for different ways of doing things. Um, so the den doesn't need uh, an audience. We sort of are our own audience, if you like. Uh, and then they said, okay, right, so go on, do seven of them in the lead-up to Christmas on a Sunday evening. So we returned um, on Sunday, and we go we're going to be there up until uh, the 20th of December every Sunday. And it's it's <laughs> uh, it was like playing it was like playing a full rugby match against very tough opposition there on Sunday because uh, after it, I was like just flaked out um, it was very intense because we used to do things uh, you know over three minutes and then there'd be you know you obviously weren't alive and this is going on but so it was on in an afternoon there'd be three hours but there'd be you know two hours of cartoons so we'd come on and we'd introduce the first program which would be 20 minutes long uh, and then so we could have a break or whatever have to get a coffee then we come back on for four or five minutes do a little bit of the thing then there'd be another uh, program so you know it was easy enough to do but on Sunday, we did all of the things without the program, so everything was condensed into an hour. So we were never off screen. So it was it was great fun. 
like it, it went like that um, and that was the, the best compliment that people have been paying is that it didn't feel like an hour at all it felt like like 20 minutes so it's great to be back I don't know what's going to happen next but it's it's, it's something that wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a pandemic. Ray, we're going to hit you with some quick fire questions. Okay, to great. Finish okay, off the show. going to get ready for this. Okay. Okay. So, what is your favorite chocolate bar? Very uh, boring. Lint, ninety percent dark chocolate. Uh, football or rugby? Uh, rugby. Drive or cycle? Cycle. What's your favorite movie? Uh, the Jerk with um, Steve Martin. Most annoying celebrity. <laughs> so many, so many faces are going through my head. So many names, but I can't stand them. You can Sorry. take a pass. <laughs> yeah, pass. iPhone or Samsung? Uh, iPhone. Nike or Adidas? Uh, well, I just want to think. Adidas. Favorite animal? Uh, dog. Favorite color? Uh, navy. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Invisibility. Well, that's all we have time for, Ray. Thanks a lot for coming on. It's been a great okay. show, and I hope we can catch up again sometime. Thank you, Ray. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Connor. Thanks, Sam. Really Thanks. enjoyed that. Thank you very much.